So there's a story of an archaeological dig that took place in Thailand where they were um, excavating an old temple ground. (coughs) In the course of doing this excavation, they came across this large sort of pyramid-like sort of like mud sculpture. It was just covered in mud, and it was kind of like a triangle pointed down. And they thought, that's kind of interesting, but it was, it was hard, and it wasn't just the mud itself. It was clearly shaped as something. And so they took it out, and they, um, and they put it out somewhere in the courtyard while they continued doing the excavation. And one day, someone was sort of walking around nearby, and they, they banged up against it, and some of the mud fell off. And when the mud fell off, underneath was this gold that started to shine. And that person thought, that's interesting. And so he began to rub away the mud. And the more that he rubbed, the more the mud fell away. And underneath was this incredible, golden, ancient Buddhist statue. And then now the statue is very famous. It's... um, it's, uh, you know, people go and they, they pay respects to it all the time, this golden Buddha that was covered in mud. This is a little bit like what's going on here. Maybe it's not immediately obvious, but it sort of feels like we're covered with mud, doesn't it? It's just we're really slogging through. It's been a lot. It's been difficult. We've been hearing a lot from many of you, a lot of you are having a hard time. And understandable. You've come from the busyness of your lives, the busyness of a culture where we're not taught how to look inward. We're taught how to do about everything except look inward. We're taught how to be distracted. We know how to multitask and listen to you know, music and talk on the cell phone and eat and drive and do all these things simultaneously. But we don't really know how to just stop. And so that's one of the main reasons that it's so difficult while we're here, because it's kind of against everything that um, we've been taught most of our lives. So when we begin to stop, to turn inside, and to allow the mud to fall away, to clean it, to drop it off, to sort of pick away at it, scrape away at it, maybe it feels like you're scratching with your fingernails to get the mud off. But what you find, well, what we all find is that underneath, There's this golden, radiant, luminous self that we all have, that we all have access to. And the work of meditation is the scraping away of the mud, of letting us contact that which is already present inside us. And it's there, even if it feels impossible right now to believe it. But if you've had a moment, even one moment today, and maybe you've had 99.9 thousand million moments of frustration, but there was this 0.1% where you felt a little bit of peace or ease or happiness or joy or rest, that's the gold starting to shine through. This is your true nature starting to shine through. So I wish that I could um, make meditation really easy. And I did come across this. This is a, you can't really see it very well, but it's a picture of a woman sitting in um, a lotus uh, meditation posture. And it's an ad for something called Ceridine. It's a pill. (laughs) It says, relieves anxiety fast. The as-needed supplement for immediate relief of all anxiety and panic. Safe for teens, effective for all ages. And then on her stomach it says, Inner Peace, now available in capsules. (laughs) So soon, we won't have to show up here. We'll just hand out little pills at the door and you'll be fine. I know it's frustrating. I just really want to acknowledge it. Many of you, and not everybody, but many of you have had a really hard day. And um, the work of meditation is not necessarily easy. We're all trying so hard to be good, you know, to make it work. To, we're, trying, we're showing up to the sittings and we're doing the walking meditation and we're keeping silence and we're following the instruction. 
And um, I really honor your effort because it isn't easy. This is about um, sort of the part of us that really wants to be good, or sometimes is good. If you can start the day without caffeine or pet pills, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you, you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you for no fault of your own, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can relax without liquor and sleep without the aid of drugs, then you're probably a dog. <laughs> so good luck. <laughs> just want to just wanna, um, really acknowledge this. <laughs> this is hard work, what we're doing. So I'll, I'm going to talk both about the mud on the outside of the statue and the gold inside. What's getting in the way of us seeing our gold, our true, luminous, radiant nature? What blocks it? And then what, um, what is it? What is inside when we begin to, to recognize it and feel it? We keep using the words waking up, waking up. We're talking about waking up. So I really want to get to that. What does it mean each time we say, oh, you have this opportunity here to wake up? So I want to use... Um, I'll talk about what gets in the way, and what I want to use, this is a, there's a book, um, it's called Holy Cow, an India Adventure, and it's by this woman named Sarah McDonald. she's Australian, and she went to India, and she was living there, and she decided to go on a 10-day meditation retreat, and she had an experience that, when you read the chapter, is very similar, I think, to your own. So I'll use some of her examples of the difficulties that she was working with, and maybe you'll recognize yourself in it. She, um, she calls the chapter Insane in the Membrane. <laughs> and she starts it by saying, I decided, I decided to start my quest for inner peace with a brain enema. On the train, so she's taking the train there, on the train I had nightmares of horrors of being alone inside my own head. I saw my mouth bursting with forbidden words and my body gripped in a straitjacket surrounded by white coats. My friends' laughs and warnings echoed in my heads. Few, I'll make, few think I'll make it, and one even offered me a case of beer for every day I survive. So she wasn't looking forward to this very much, and she ended up having a difficult time, but also worked through it. So... In the Buddhist teachings, we talk about things that get in the way of our practice, that make it difficult to practice. And it, they're, they're, called, they're called classically the five hindrances. And the five hindrances, the reason they, they have this name is everybody, everybody works with them. They're, they're, they've been categorized and written about, and the Buddha gave discourses about them. And it's because we all go through them. And the more that we can begin to understand and see what they're like, the more we can say, oh, that's just a hindrance. It's not something I need to take personally. It's not something I need to think is just my own problem. It's actually something that we're all going through at one point or another as we meditate, and even also outside in our lives. So the first one is the hindrance of doubt. You're sitting meditating, and you're suddenly thinking, what, what am I, why am I here? What was I thinking? Am I crazy? What do these people know? What are those teachers, those people sitting up there? They must know, they don't know anything. You know, or do they know anything? Or who am I? What am I doing? You know, all of these questions that have been going through your head. I'm wondering if anybody, just raise your hand if you had a moment of doubt about being here at some point. Okay, good. And if you didn't, I don't believe you. (laughs) I'm just kidding. So doubt, there's been doubt. Doubt is, we're questioning what we're doing here very, very normal. And this is what happens when you start anything new. You, you wonder about what you're doing. And this is really different than... It can, get, it can get a little bit sticky because our minds get caught in this doubt and then we think, maybe I should go home. You know? Or we think, maybe I'll just go for a walk in the woods and this, I don't know if this meditation thing really works. How would I know? And so what it's very important to do is begin to identify it as doubt, to see when your mind gets caught in doubt. 
and just go, oh, that's doubt. That's one of the hindrances that Diana was talking about. It's different than critical thinking. It's very, very important when we especially encounter something new that we use our best thinking around it. If you were to just to come here and listen to everything we say and say, oh yeah, that sounds great, I'm just going to believe it and and accept it unquestioningly, I mean, you could, but it also, it may not, um, I think it's really important that we digest things, that we match them with our own experience. And this is what the Buddha said. This is what he taught. He said, don't take anything I say at face value. Don't believe it because you read it in a book. Don't believe it because you've been told by some elder. Don't believe it because everybody else is doing it. Don't believe it for any of these reasons. Believe it only when it matches with your direct experience and shows you directly this will lead to the end of suffering. Or this, if you know something will lead to suffering, don't follow it. If you know something will lead to the end of suffering, follow it, then believe it. So I really encourage, in fact, everything that Mark and I say, you should check it out. This is, this is one of the most famous teachings of the Buddha, inviting us all to really check it out. So this is, this is to distinguish critical thinking from oh no, I'm doing meditation wrong, should I be doing it this way, what am I doing, Uh, you know, that kind of thinking, that's different. The second hindrance, I know for a fact that many of you are feeling it, and this is sleepiness. So raise your hand, who was sleepy today? Okay, like 90% of the room. And again, as we pointed out, that um, we come from busy lives, and we show up here and we stop, and we're exhausted for many of us. And then it's this long day, and there's sitting, there's walking, you're not probably getting, for many of you, as much exercise as you do at home. It's, there's a lot of sleepiness. This was Sarah's experience with sleepiness. She said, why am I wasting 10 days of my life learning to sleep sitting up? <laughs> At one stage, I began to doze and jerk awake so suddenly that I bang my head against the wall. I crack up quietly as I can. I'm actually dying for a good laugh. This meditation stuff is intensely serious, and most of us look very depressed. (laughs) So we all experience, we all, especially when we're starting a retreat, can experience that hazy kind of... Uh, spacey quality, or it can feel heavy, or it can feel like we're in a fog. It can just be really, really unpleasant, and then it feels like you're wasting your time, or it feels like you're doing something wrong. See if, if you're if feeling that experience of sleepiness, if you can begin to notice, oh, this is sleepiness. So you can begin to recognize these hindrances. Oh, this is doubt. This is, when my mind starts thinking in this way, that's me doubting. Or when my mind is getting sleepy and hazy and my body feels heavy, that's sleepiness. As I suggested earlier, you can open your eyes, you can stand up, you can go outside and do some walking, anything to bring some energy in with the sleepiness. So the opposite of sleepiness, if you... um, have not, maybe you haven't been having sleepiness, but instead have been having restlessness and agitation and worry. So, all right, raise your hand. Who's been restless today? (laughs) Yeah, you know, so about half of you have had a lot of restlessness. So restlessness, a mind that's busy, zipping around, a body that feels antsy, kind of feel like you want to jump out of your seat, you want to go running out of the room screaming. I mean, there's all different degrees of restlessness. It may just be also that your mind is just kind of slightly agitated and can't quite stay with the breathing, can't really stay mindful. Very, very normal. So here's Sarah's experience with um, restlessness. She says... Wonderland is within. I'm hyperactive and insane. One thought leads to something ridiculously unrelated and never comes back to the first. My thoughts don't make any sense or come to any conclusions or insights. And there's rarely one thought at once. They're layers of boring, repetitive, crazed snippets. 
I'm regurgitating memories, plans, information, music, movies, friends episodes, Doctor Who highlights, and daydream. It's mayhem in there. I feel like I'm trapped in a TV episode of Survivor Buddhists. The the last one left gets enlightenment. Today I realize my brain is beyond mad. It's now sprouting huge paragraphs from novels I've never read, (laughs) using languages I don't even understand. Unfortunately, it doesn't last, and I come out of the meditations as moronic as I go in. I feel like I'm on drugs, but there's no one there to talk me down or share the experience with. My brain is so desperate for, desperate for friends it starts talking to itself, taking on male and female characters with strong accents and weird attitudes. <laughs> you are not alone. <laughs> this is what happens. We sit down to meditate, and we discover we have these wild minds, these restless minds and bodies. And... Through the power of meditation, we begin to calm them down. So restlessness, it's the opposite of the sleepiness. With the sleepiness, we might be, have a little bit of concentration, but not much energy. With restlessness, we tend to have a lot of energy, but very little concentration. So with restlessness, we want to bring, get a, try to become more concentrated, which in some ways may involve, it could involve one of two things. If we're feeling really restless, Sometimes it helps to get a little bit more spacious. So in other words, if, um, if you, we did a little bit of hearing meditation today. If you just sort of let yourself relax a little bit, soften your posture if you're feeling really <laughs> restless, and just kind of breathe and listen to the sounds and see if that helps you relax and get a little bit more focused and centered. And sometimes, conversely, the opposite helps by being, being a little bit more specific and detailed, bringing your attention into your breathing more specifically and with more curiosity can help with the restlessness. But again, knowing it's just restlessness, it's not a problem. It's something that happens when we meditate. Can we bring our attention? Oh, there's restlessness. What does that feel like? What does it feel like in our bodies? This is so key, always coming back to our bodies. So there's doubt, there's sleepiness, there's restlessness, and then the fourth is wanting or craving or desire. So what that is is when our mind goes off in a hundred directions after something that's not in the present moment, some kind of thing that we think is going to provide us happiness, either a mental image or something that's actually there that we want, we desire. And rather than sitting here and paying attention to our breath, which can seem tremendously boring, we'd much rather think about, you know, that cute person we just met or this great meal that we had or the um, fantasy vacation we want to go on. Or it can be even more subtle than that. It can be like we start imagining we had a great meditation this morning at 6 a.m. Oh, if only that would come back just like that. And you start to remember it and think about it, and then you get really mad because this, the one you're having right at the moment has nothing to do with that. And, um, and so finding a way to um, not allow ourselves to get so caught up with these fantasies they work in so many interesting ways. I mean, have any of you, well, all right, first of all, who's had wanting today? Raise your hand. Craving for something that's not here or maybe here, dessert, cookies, chocolate. <laughs> One of the ways it manifests on retreat quite often is um, what we call the VR, which is a very shorthand for the Vipassana romance. Okay? Someone on the retreat you've never talked to, you've never met, you have no idea if they're married, if they're of the same sexual orientation as you, you have no idea who they are or anything, but you're madly in love. (laughs) And you see them coming and you start, oh, here come their shoes, their shoes, because you're looking down, right? And then you go out to the hallway out there and the shoes are next to each other and you think this is fate. I know it. And you sit there and you think of this person who you haven't met, you haven't talked to, you have no idea, you know, anything. And you're suddenly, you're married, you're living together, then you get divorced, then you get, I don't know what happens, but you know how your mind does all this stuff? This is what we're doing. We're sitting here noticing what our mind does. It goes off into these fantasies. 
And oftentimes, the thing that we want isn't really that great once we get it. Or the thing that we want once we get it, we realize we don't want it. Or the thing that we want once we get it, we realize is okay, but isn't as great as we thought it would be. I was once sitting a, a longer meditation retreat of about a couple of months, and um, I, was, I would find myself getting very restless in the evenings, and I would take little walks. And one day I saw that the cooks had left out the meal schedule. And I was so excited because there wasn't that much to entertain you, right? <laughs> and I saw that it was about a Tuesday, and I looked on the schedule, and I saw that on Friday they were going to have pizza. So I got very, very excited because, <laughs> as I said, not much was going on. But also, um, you know, they made really good pizza at this place. It was very homemade. It was at Insight Meditation Society. And so you can probably guess what I did between Tuesday and Friday. <laughs> I thought about the pizza. So I would just fantasize. I would try to meditate. I'd try to stay with my breath. But as I'd be staying with my breath, this, like, the smell and the shape and the image and just pizza just began to plague my entire experience. I was fascinated by, oh, and I wonder if it'll be mushroom or olives or, you know, and I mean, I did meditate a little bit, I think, but, but I was, I was so caught up in this. And finally it became, it was Friday and I slowly walked down over to the lunch line and I sort of positioned myself. I didn't want to be first because if I was first, I thought I'd look too greedy. So I went for third so I could get a really good slice. And I waited, and I walked to the line, and I got the pizza, and I went, and I went out into the lawn, and I sat somewhere beautiful, and I looked down, and I was so excited, and I started to eat my pizza, and it was pizza. (laughs) It was, you know, it was bread and cheese and tomato sauce and mushrooms, maybe. It was, it was good. It was, I mean, it was fine, but it wasn't certainly worth this three or four day anticipatory <laughs> wait for it. And it was, what I saw was that I had spent all this time lost in the craving and during that time completely missed my life. I missed the moment. I was gone. I was out somewhere else. And then when I finally got the thing I wanted so badly, it was okay, but it wasn't really going to provide me with permanent lasting happiness, was it? It was just pizza. So we do this all the time. We imagine things in the future or things that we want that we could have in that moment that would, we think are going to provide lasting happiness. And what we're learning to do with our meditation is just to come back to the present moment and see the happiness inherent in here and now, to see what's true, that happiness isn't dependent upon objects. Happiness comes to us from the inside. Happiness is when we can be in relation to things in a healthy way. One of the most famous teachings of the Buddha, sort of the pith teaching in a way, is nothing whatsoever should be clung to as me or mine. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as me or mine. And that's because if we cling to something, thinking it's going to provide happiness to us, we're usually going to be disappointed because the clinging is where we suffer. If you sit there thinking, oh, I wonder what they're going to have for lunch, what are they going to have for lunch, and your mind is so in the future that you've lost any sense of the present, there's suffering going on. There's just that wanting, that yearning, that longing or there's the opposite, pushing, trying to get rid of anything that's in, in the way of getting what we want. So the Buddha invites us to stop this incessant clinging, which I'll talk about a little bit more as it relates to identity, but see how we get caught around wanting something to make us happy. And by the way, not that there are not wonderful things in life that, that make us happy. There's, and of course, many things are beautiful. And it's more that when we cling onto them and think that we can't live without them and our mind is so hooked, we get stuck and then we suffer. So the last one is um, aversion, the opposite. 
hating the experience, hating everything, hating everyone, feeling grief, feeling sadness, feeling fear. There's, there's, there's all different forms of the hating. And here's Sarah's aversion. Let's see, hang on. So remember, she's in India as she's doing this. She says, today I'm feeling very dizzy and faint. My knees are killing me and I have a horrific headache from coffee withdrawal. My bowels are also missing caffeine and it seems I'm not the only one. Everyone is scoffing tablespoons of laxative. How are we meant to cleanse our brains when our bodies are as clogged as India's toilets? I'm also suffering sensory deprivation and feeling exhausted beyond all tiredness. And I realize now why there's a vow not to kill. <laughs> There's a mad Indian down the hill who's been yelling some political slogan through a loudspeaker for hours. I'm meant to be cultivating tolerance and infinite compassion, and all I can think about is how I'd like to murder him. We have these minds that get really irritated quite easily. Somebody comes in and they're wearing something that we don't like and we get annoyed or they're coughing or they're breathing in a certain way. And, you know, it's all inside us. We think it's them, but really it's happening inside us. You know, we're having a reaction. We are, um, we're sad. We're angry. We're, we're feeling, we want to get rid of experience. This happens all the time. And so, and we suffer. So it's the opposite of the clinging on. It's the pushing away. It's, um hating things. And sometimes, again, it's more subtle. Sometimes it's just resistance. Like, I don't want to go into that sit. You know, it's not like I hate the sit and it's horrible, but I just really don't want to. And we can feel it. Or I don't want to be with the stomach pain or the knee pain. And sometimes there's layers of aversion. Like you're, you're mad at something and then you're mad at yourself for being mad at that thing. And then you're mad at yourself for being mad that you're mad about the thing that you're mad about, right? So there's layers of aversion. Okay, who had aversion today at some point? Pretty good, most people. <laughs> it's really normal. All of these mind states, they're so normal. They come up in all of us because we're human beings. And we're, we're kind of, a lot of us are careening through them. We're, we're um, you know, we're, we're restless and then we're sleepy and then we're mad and then we're wanting something and then we're sleepy again. And sometimes it can feel like meditation is like that, especially just as we're starting. And the trick is, both with the craving and the aversion, is to know that we're in the midst of it. Oh, it's just craving. It's just aversion. It's not a horrible thing. There's nothing wrong with me. There is nothing wrong with you because you're feeling these things. They're just part of the whole spectrum of life on retreat, of this experience that we can learn to be aware of. What does craving feel like in the body? You can actually bring your attention into your body and feel it. It's this sense of longing, of wanting. Often we feel it in our stomach, a sense of clutching, or in our chest, a sense it could be a contraction. Or when there's aversion, we can have a sense of wanting to push something away. Like you can actually physically feel it. See if you can sense it next time you're having one of these experiences. One of the worst forms of aversion, it's kind of a combination of aversion and doubt, is when we get critical of ourselves. And this is so common, again, there's so much, I don't, I don't know why it is, but we live in this culture, we, I mean, there's lots of theories why it is, but we live in a culture where most of us grew up not liking ourselves. You know, not everybody, but so many of us have these really nasty voices that come into our heads all the time. You, I can't believe you were sitting that way, and you're so fat, and why did I do this? And I feel like such a jerk. I'm an idiot. You know, this goes on and on. And if we, if somebody else were to talk to us the way we talk to ourselves, we would never let them get away with it. We wouldn't. But we do it to ourselves all the time. Here's Sarah's form of self-judgment. 
She said, I've heard the Dalai Lama warn that too many Westerners come out of meditation retreats thinking they are the Buddha. My self-image is not that good. I think I'm Sally Field in Sybil (laughs) with a major multiple personality disorder. Conducting my own psychotherapy, I half hope for repressed childhood memories. All I come up with are ABBA and KISS songs. (laughs) Poor thing. So many of us, as we're sitting and we're practicing, these voices come up saying, we're no good, I'm a bad meditator, I'm, you know, I shouldn't have done that, everybody's thinking I'm, you know, whether we project it onto other people or we take it on ourselves and just, it's like this self-critical voice. And there's a great bumper sticker that I love. It's, it, I don't know if anyone's ever seen it. It says, don't believe everything you think. This is one of the greatest teachings of mindfulness that we learn as we meditate and as we practice, that our thoughts are not necessarily something we have to believe in especially when the thoughts lead to suffering. So I recently asked a group of teenagers, sometimes I work with kids, and I asked a group of teenagers, well, what, have you ever heard that bumper sticker or seen it? And someone said, yeah. And I said, well, what does it mean to you? And so this 14-year-old girl said, well, if I take a test and um, afterwards I say, I'm such a stupid idiot, I shouldn't have, um, I, should have, I failed that test, I know I shouldn't believe that thought. And this, and you can translate it to your own life. When do we believe thoughts that really don't help us? When do we have thoughts arise that if we were to look at them a little more objectively, we'd realize that they're just leading to tremendous suffering? These thoughts arise for many of us all the time or very frequently. And they come unbidden. We don't say, okay, now I'm going to think bad thoughts about myself. They just sort of pop in. And they're, they're often, they're conditioned, they're habitual. They're usually sort of matched to something that, that we remember from our past, for instance. Like we do something and then it's maybe like a voice of our mom saying, that was stupid. Or, um, and we've internalized these things. And so the task isn't to make them go away because... With time and with practice and with many kinds of practices, there are many ways of working with these things, they will shift. And I know that many people that I've worked with and in my own experience, that it changes over time, that we learn to sort of reprogram these voices. But what we can do here with mindfulness is learn to give them some space to not take them so personally, to really not believe them when they come up. And there are all sorts of ways of doing it. So one way is when you have a self-critical voice, or it could be any difficult voice that's causing suffering, to, um, you can note it. You can say, you can, um, say self-critical voice or self-judgment. And some people even find it useful to count them. So self-judgment one, self-judgment six, self-judgment 18, self-judgment 94, and it's still like 8 o'clock in the morning. You know, it's, it's, um, it's very habitual. As we, as we practice with it, we begin to see the habitual nature of these judging voices. So that's one way of working with it. You can also go into your body, feel inside your body when you're judging yourself. What does it feel like? What's going on? There's a clutching in my heart. There's a pounding. There's a burning. Pay attention inside. Another way that I find really useful to recognize that it's just a thought um, came from an experience that a friend of mine had on a retreat. She was meditating, and um, she had lots of self-critical voices. And she was outside in the, um, doing walking meditation, and there were all these little chipmunks walking around. And she thought they were cute, so she sort of knelt down to get closer to one, and the chipmunk ran away. And she thought... I'm so stupid and such a jerk. Even the chipmunks hate me. (laughs) And that really, I mean, that's what went through her head. 
And she went in to see her teacher later on, and she, he said, how are you doing? And she said, I'm having a horrible time. I'm terrible at meditation. I'm such a jerk. Even the chipmunks hate me. And he said, even the chipmunks hate me. The sky is blue. And what happened for her, what she saw in that moment, is the thought, the chipmunks hate me, and the thought, the sky is blue, were both thoughts. The sky is blue is a very neutral thought. It just kind of, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have an emotional charge for us. We allow that chipmunk hate me thought to have an emotional charge. But when she can see it as just a neutral thought, the sky is blue, the sky is blue, she began to have freedom. She began to not cling to it and believe it, because this is what the Buddha was really saying when he said, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as me or mine. This is what he was saying. When we cling to a thought, when we cling to a belief, when we cling to a judgment, especially ones like these kinds of judgments, we tend to suffer. When we let go and just see them as thoughts, when we do a process called disidentification, which really means not taking something so personally, not taking it to be me or mine, it's just a thought, then there's freedom, then we stop clinging. So that's really the invitation as you've been working with your mind all day. I know it's, I mean, I, I recognize that there are all these thoughts coming through and we often grasp onto them and then we suffer. You can see for yourself. You know when you're caught and you know when you're let go. And the, cl- the clue is that you stop suffering. When you're no longer believing something, holding on to it, thinking that until I get that, you know, ice cream or chocolate, then I'm going to be happy. When you let go, that's when the suffering stops. This is the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings and the wisdom that you can discover as you practice. This is from the poet Rumi. It's called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty it of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. We can take a moment as we hear that. We sit and we meditate and all these things come in, like they come into our home. The joy and the fear and the sorrow and the grief and the knee pain and the hatingness and the wanting to go home and the can't wait to tell my friend and the talking in your head and the, you know, it just all comes through. Can we let things pass by? Can we let them be like bubbles? or like a rainbow, just appearing and disappearing, or like our mind like a mirror, just seeing what is here, acknowledging it and letting it go, not clinging. This is the practice that we're doing here. As we do this, as we practice, as we sort of scrape the mud off the sides of our statue, as we scrape and scrape, and sometimes the mud feels really thick, thick and hard to get through, we begin to have tastes of what it means to have that glimmering golden light as our birthright. Sometimes it's called our Buddha nature, like the true nature, the inner goodness within each of us. 
it's there all the time, but we just don't really remember it. We forget. We get so kind of caught, covered up, lost in our stuff, in the drama of being ourselves, that we lose touch with that goodness. This is a beautiful quote um, that comes to us from the Ojibwe people who are um, the, the Canadian, they call First Nations or Native, Native Peoples. And I have to say that this quote has ended up in um, a Sopranos episode, <laughs> but I don't care because it's beautiful. <laughs> it says, sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the time I'm being carried on great winds across the sky. Sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the time I'm being carried on great winds across the sky. We forget. We get so identified with the mud that we lose touch with what's inside. So I just want to say a little bit more about what that is. What is the promise of this practice? If we practice, and maybe, maybe some of you have had some glimmers. All right, now I'm going to test. Did anybody have a glimmer of the gold inside you? Just raise your hand if you just might have. All right, good, okay. So, you do, so, there, so there's some proof out in the audience here <laughs> that if you practice, you will have a moment of connecting to yourself in a way that feels, um, that feels true. You'll find a moment of connecting, of having maybe an insight into your true nature. You will find a moment of joy or peace or ease, maybe more than a moment, maybe hours, maybe weeks or months. Because this is what is inside us, is this quality of goodness that's there in each of us. And as we practice, we begin to find out who we are more. Rather than looking outwards, we begin to look inwards. And if we really want to know who's inside, we check in with ourselves, what's really going on. People begin to have insights as they practice, all sorts of insights into them. Insights, I really want to distinguish insight from knowledge. Knowledge tends to be what comes from, you know, what we're told or from book learning or from what someone is. So really it kind of is imposed from the outside. It's more an intellectual understanding. When we practice Vipassana meditation or insight meditation, we connect with a deeper wisdom, which is our own insight. So it's almost like it comes up from inside ourselves. Maybe you've had a moment where you had a realization about yourself, where you thought, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't realized that about me. Or you had a realization about someone you're close to in your family or at work. Or you simply noticed the way the world works. You saw the passing nature of things. Or you felt on a deep level, not on an intellectual level, the interconnectedness of things. You might have been walking in the woods and suddenly there was this sense of lack of separation. When you recognize these, when this wisdom arises, when this insight comes, this is connecting with that golden Buddha nature inside yourself. This goodness, we may have tastes of compassion, of joy, of ease, of self-love. How wonderful when that arises. We may notice that we begin to change in different certain ways. We might stay the same in one level, but in another level, as we practice, things in our lives change. So it may be that when you go home and you visit your family and you go back, there's still going to be this sense of a little, you get agitated or disturbed by, um, by someone in your family. And as they say, the family's the hardest one. So you can practice and you can develop all this kindness and compassion. Then you go home and you get in a fight with your 
sibling or your relative, they say that the reason that our families know how to push our buttons is because they installed them. <laughs> so that may happen. And yet there's subtle changes that are happening inside ourselves. We're accessing, we're learning, to, we're getting tastes of this natural goodness. One of my favorite things that arises from practice that really is this emanation of our inner goodness or this Buddha nature is when we begin to have this quality called equanimity. And equanimity is an even-mindedness, a balance in the midst of life's ups and downs, life's ups and downs. So that no matter what's happening, we can feel, we can be okay with it. Because this is the very quality that we're developing as we practice. We're sitting with the knee pain and the suffering and the hunger and the fantasy and all of that. And we're, div- we're not trying to have a really great experience. I mean, it would be wonderful if it was great, but it's, you know, for most people, it's a mixture of ups and downs. What we are trying to do is develop a capacity to be with things no matter as they, what they are, exactly as they are. Can we be with those hindrances, with the aversion, with the sleepiness, with the restlessness, with the wanting, with the joy, with the excitement, whatever it is, can we have a mind of equanimity that can be with things exactly as they are? This is the practice. It took a long time for me to develop this equanimity. I spent, I spent a long time on retreat once, um, not, in, not intentionally working on it, but it, it developed on its own over time. I was um, meditating in a forest monastery in Burma, and I was, I, had be, I was a nun. I lived there for a year, and I shaved my head, and I wore robes, and I, um, it, was, it was quite an experience. It was, it, was, it was hard. It was definitely hard. So we, I was doing what you guys were doing, but every day for a year. And you dealt with a lot of suffering. It was painful. And the, some of the worst stuff was I hated the food. So here you got it really good because the food is delicious. But I hated the food. I hated, um, it was kind of noisy where I was practicing. But the worst part was there were snakes and spiders and scorpions and all sorts of other creepy crawly things. And um, the worst was the mosquitoes. There were mosquitoes everywhere. And so I was living in this hut, and the hut had no screens. So there I was in the middle of the jungle in this hut with no screens. And so I tried to figure out, I spent a lot of my time while I was meditating trying to figure out ways to get the mosquitoes out of my hut. So I would do things like I, I put I, I put some of the holes, um, I put magazines over some of the windows, but then I got really hot because it was like 100 degrees. So I gave that up, and then I took this bucket of lake water, and I put it in the, um, in the room, and I waited for the mosquitoes to land on the lake water, and then I would cover up the top, and I'd rush out, and all the mosquitoes would go out the door, but then they'd come right back in. And then I, um, I, was, I spent a lot of time designing mosquito traps, and one of, <laughs> one of my favorite ones that really worked was to stand in front of the window and as the mosquitoes were coming toward, oh, turning off all the lights and putting the, the outside light on, and as the mosquitoes were coming towards me, I would jump out, the, out of the way and they'd fly out the window. It was kind of like a bull, you know, a bullfight. Like. And, um, and that looked great. But what was happening was, um, one, I wasn't meditating. So now you're learning my sordid history of meditation where I spend time thinking about pizza and, and mosquito traps. So you're not alone. Um, so I wasn't meditating. I was, I was thinking about mosquito traps. And what I began to see was no matter what I did, there was always going to be another mosquito, no matter what I did. And so I could design mosquito traps all day, and I could even come up with the most incredible ones that could keep every mosquito out. But then another one would come in. And what I saw was it wasn't about developing a, mind, a, a new mosquito trap. 
What it was about was developing a mind that could be equanimous, at ease with whatever came my way. So I came up with a little saying, there's always another mosquito. And there will always be another something here on this retreat. There will always be another knee pain or another wanting to go home or another, I don't know, roommate problem or whatever it is. There will be something. Can we have the peace of mind in the midst of it? That's our practice. That's the golden Buddha underneath. The peace, the joy, the compassion, the ease. And all of this is available to you as you practice. So let's close our eyes for one moment and just sit. Just going to sit for two minutes, not even. Just let yourself sense into yourself. And as you're paying attention, just notice what's there. Is it the mud? Or is there some little bit of the golden Buddha within you? And you can translate if Buddha doesn't work for you, but something else does. Just sense inside. Maybe there's a little bit of spontaneous joy or laughter or ease or peace or a moment of mindfulness. Is there something inside? And if there's mostly just fear and annoyance and sadness and self-hating and all that, can you acknowledge that as the mud covering up, covering up your true nature, your birthright? Sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the time I'm being carried on great winds across the sky. This talk was given by Diana Winston at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on May 19, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.